This is a Fubar Radio podcast. Go to fubarradio.com for more details. Fubar Radio presents Politics on Fubar. And good afternoon and welcome to Politics on Fubar. I'm Asa Bennett and it's my delight to welcome you to the latest show. Today we'll be focusing on the NHS. Uh, it is the pride of everyone in Britain and we will be exploring how best you know, to improve the service in a variety of ways. We'll be having an extended interview with Norman Lamb, the Liberal Democrats health spokesman and a former minister in the coalition. We'll also be debating the future of the NHS and what best is the way to improve the service with a variety of experts um, in the ranging from Kate Andrews of the free market uh, think tank the Institute of Economic Affairs and Dr Yusuf El Gengihi who is a GP and so there'll be lots of insight there to share but in the meantime if you're listening to this show and you'd be thinking you really want to get in touch, by all means do. You can tweet us at Fubar Radio and email politics at foobarradio.com. But first off, I'd just like to sort of mention that, you know, it's great news in the sense that we are finally nearing the end of the debate season in the election campaign. Obviously, it's been great for the party leaders to be involved on TV and you're giving their views on all and sundry. But then what have we really learned? Because yesterday we had the BBC election debate. It was a sort of seven-way show with Amazon. Rudd versus other party leaders. She was a Conservative Home Secretary, of course. Jeremy Corbyn was a surprise entrant. And yet, you, know, you think so many voices were there. It was just a festival of shouting, I think. You know, no, nothing much was learned. As, as, as soon as there was any interrogation going on, you suddenly had to listen to Amber Rudd going strong and stable. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn, coalition of chaos. And then Jeremy Corbyn would start something up. Tim Farron would butt in from the side. It was a shambles in some ways. And so thankfully, there'll be the final sort of discussion going on tonight with Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May facing voters separately. And we'll see all sorts of opinions, I guess, shared then. But I think I'm more intrigued personally by the opinions that um, your good selves you've shared on the Facebook pages about uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May because this week we put two posts on Facebook one saying if you like like this post if Jeremy Corbyn is your man the other saying like this post if you want Theresa May to stay now the comments are rather interesting well first off if you're wondering how many likes did we get for each one well Theresa May didn't do very well because it was about 23 at the last count whereas Jeremy Corbyn vaulting ahead with four times as much about sort of 80 and the remark that were even more uh, fruity, let's put it this way, given that they were not the sort of demure stuff you'd see on the BBC debate screen. Instead, we have things like Dave Parker saying about Corbyn, Christ, I'd rather stick a fork in my eye. And meanwhile, Theresa May got it even more bluntly with someone just saying simply this, Obi Joe said, fuck that shit. And as Les Kavanagh said, pricks. So it's very sort of strong in messaging but then Theresa May nonetheless seems to be sort of stable or rather not in the polls given that they seem to suggest that she's about only three points ahead according to YouGov but then meanwhile the Tory campaign they might think that if they stay cool and calm about this then you know maybe victory will be assured but how great will it be next week we'll have to see in the meantime on to the NHS now a survey did show that uh, sort of, but, well, the survey showed how important it was. It was the pride of Britain. And we'll be very much looking forward to exploring this with Dr. Aldham Dalby. But beforehand, just to cap you off and summarise what you missed from the BBC election debate, by the way, you know, we've had a little summary package prepared for you. We've reduced taxes for the lowest paid and we've made sure that we've continued to invest in the NHS. But the only way we can have that money to invest in our public services, and we know the importance of our public services, our schools, our hospitals, is to make sure that we have a strong economy, which does sometimes mean making difficult choices, those sort of choices that no other party here is prepared to face up to. The Conservative government has made a lot of choices. We know what those choices are. 
Our schools are underfunded, our hospitals are overcrowded, our students are saddled with debt, there's a growing housing crisis. This country is not a poor country. The money is in the wrong hands. There is vast inequality in this country. And if we were to sort that problem out, then we would have a much better uh, chance of ensuring that public services are properly paid for. Take the NHS, for example. We put far less into the NHS than most other countries of a similar GDP, the similar wealth. We don't put that money in our public services, and therefore we don't have the world-class public services that we demand. And I think when older people are facing the most likely prospect, which is a re-elected Tory government, sadly, and they are promising a dementia tax, an end to the winter fuel payment, and cuts to the pension, I think those people deserve to know by how much. And they haven't been told. The NHS is personal, not political. My my mum, who had ovarian cancer, from her, the point of her diagnosis to her treatment uh, to her care to her passing away in a ward just two floors away from the one where she'd given birth to me, like everybody out there, our experience of the National Health Service is personal. And, and let me finish. And the point is simply this. If you look at and you use National Health Services, you know, as we saw in Manchester just last week, how utterly brilliant, caring, dedicated and professional the they are. And yet, and yet, and yet, Caroline, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, Caroline, let me finish, let me finish, let me finish, you know I didn't. Let me, so what we've got here is you see the professionalism and the decency of those people, but have we got the best funded health service in the world? No, we haven't. Because we're prepared to look at different priorities, we can give the NHS an extra £9 billion a year. £2 billion extra for social care. It's not that long ago that you called the NHS a monolithic hangover from days gone by. You said, let's privatise it. (laughs) You want to privatise it. When did you change your mind? And in the areas of procurement, I think I was right. I think the NHS could do better. We have to start putting more money into our public services and our resources. We have to have an economy that works for all, and we don't have to have a SPIV economy that hands tax relief to the biggest corporations and the wealthiest people whilst ignoring the desperate cries for social help of so many people in our country. And I am determined to build a country for our kids, mine included, where people are decent to one another, where people have enough, where we have a national health service that is properly funded. And that means being honest with the British people, saying we will put a penny on income tax to have the best health service in the world. It means stopping Theresa May's plans to do to your kids' schools what she's currently doing to our hospitals. FUBAR Radio presents... Sarah Love and my Stiggy. Josh, welcome to the studio. You've started something called Rise Up. I have, yeah. We're just trying to reach out to young people in the UK and trying to get them to register. Only 40% of young people are voting right now. Why do you think young people need to vote? A lot of the policies that are happening at the moment, they're kind of favouring the people that do vote. They're not treating young people very well in this country and it's because they don't vote. So if you you ain't making yourself heard, then whoever's in power ain't going to take any notice of you. Every Monday, Sarah Love and my Stiggy. From 4pm, FUBAR Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back. I'm Asa Bennett and we're talking about the NHS this week. And now, it's a fascinating topic because 
people, so many people are so proud of it. And that the last survey last year found that uh, people were proud of many different things. Beans on toast is what made them proud to be British, apparently. Sort of the Queen, the Team GB, the Olympics, so much and more delighted them. But uh, on top of this poll, 66% of people said the NHS made them the most proud to be British. And of course, this is why it's such an emotive issue in politics, is that it has to deal with an increasing load of patients. It is under strain. The budgets, though, obviously are not uh, going through the roof to match. Instead, they are having to be sort of kept down by the Conservative government, also, or rather increasing in real terms. Fine, there were, you know, but still, it's not, uh, it's a tight budget and sort of, you know, bootstraps being pulled up, belts and braces. It's not a pretty sight in some ways. And so, junior doctors, for example, have been on the front line with this in their sort of war against Jeremy Hunt as health secretary, and they've been taken to the streets numerous times over the last few months to protest over what they felt was the imposition of junior doctors' contracts. And indeed, the public support they inspired was testament to sort of uh, how they could strike a strike a chord among the general public and how they felt about these things. Now, I've got the pleasure to have with me on the line uh, Dr. Adam Dalby, who is a junior doctor in respiratory medicine at Hull Royal Infirmary. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, Adam, I remember that you um, were very sort of brave and going against the grain among the junior, junior doctor strikes in that you... Um, I think, am I right in remembering you, you supported them at first, but then you sort of fell out of favour, you were disenfranchised? Uh, yeah, I mean, brave or stupid is the, um, the, the kind of term I would use to describe mm. it. Um, so I, I supported the BMA originally, I mean, we, there was a lot of propaganda about 30% pay cut and that kind of thing. Um, but then I realised that the contract when it came out wasn't actually as bad as, it, it wasn't as bad as it could be, mm. um, and was being portrayed by the BMA. Um, so what what really happened was that, that I, I, I changed my mind over supporting the strike action because I thought, felt that it was disproportionate. Um, and really they were kind of waging a war against a democratically elected government. Mm. And then did your um, colleagues respect you for this? Were, were you getting uh, sort of hate mail? I, I, remember. I got quite a lot of abuse on Twitter yeah. and Facebook. Um, but I, I did get some support from, uh, some very quiet support actually. Mm. Um, I didn't really get much support on on a kind of open platform. So I got direct messages on Twitter, um, both polite and, and not so polite. What, what were the uh, le- less polite ones, in a sense? How bad did it get? Oh, scab, tubby Tory, hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I mean, because they, they must have thought that... Is it because they, they thought there's only one opinion you can have, which is to sort of support the strikes and really stick it to the Tories in that sense? Yeah, it, it was. It, it kind of felt like a war against the Tories rather mm. than an actual problem with a contract, um, and that was my my issue with it. And I mean, the fallout from the the contract has actually been minimal from the perspective of actual working on the ground mm. um, versus the fear of the contract. So the fear that the contract has inspired is actually worse than than the actual contract itself. I mean, I I'm speaking to the junior doctors who are applying to their specialties. Mm. And apparently very few in my area, about five or six of them only, have applied to specialties. The rest are doing what we call an F3 year after their foundation years mm. um, because they, they, they're fearful of this new contract. When actually it's got some quite good features with it, um, particularly the exception reporting. Um, I'll just explain that briefly. Um, basically, when you work over the hours that you're given, you, you put in what's called an exception report electronically to your clinical supervisor mm. and you get the time back. Um, so it's actually fairer than the old system of monitoring, which was kind of a random exercise by human resources who they would say, we need you to monitor your working hours for this time, uh, so this period of a week, say, mm. um, and then um, come back and, and decide whether the banding 
so the amount of money you'd get for working that rotor hmm. was right or not. Um, so you'd say it's an improvement overall. It was complicated. So I, I would say it is an improvement. Working yeah. life has got yeah. better then. You're not sort of tired, making mistakes, killing people from negligence, in other words. No, no. I would say it's had no effect on that whatsoever. Um, hmm. um, the, the problem we've got in the NHS at the minute is with retention in certain specialties. Mm. Um, and with retention of keeping those F2 doctors, which is the, the second year after you finish medical school when you're fully registered with the GMC and free to pick a specialty, mm. um, where we've got problems with people uh, going into emergency medicine or going into GP or going into core medical training um, because of, of basic fear of this contract. Um, so it was actually the communication that the government had a problem with, I believe, Mm, so you think Jeremy Hunt dropped the ball there and, you know, he should have been more understanding? He, he should have been. I mean, he, he, he should have taken the fall for the problems of the communication. He, sh- he should have gone, mm. really, um, because it was a monumental mistake that, that, that was potentially um, going to have an adverse an effect on the NHS and has, indeed, with the retention problems I've talked about and the, the fear of the contract... I've talked about mm. and the poor communication has has um, had a negative effect. Because when you're talking about poor attention, one of the things that the British Medical Association used to say, or still probably do, is that all the sort of junior doctors now, they're going to be running off to Australia, applications to work abroad are through the roof, in a sense. Do you, do you recognise this? Yes, I do. Mm. Are they um, actually going abroad, down under, in, in such numbers, or is it kind of uh, propaganda or something? It's it's a bit of both. I mean, the uh, the BMA do do seem to stretch stretch the truth to a certain extent at some points in time to suit their own agenda. I mean, they're a trade union; they have a right to do that. Mm. Um, but as a professional trade union, I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with it at times. Um, but I mean, the people I know who've gone to Australia have gone for a period of a year and are coming back. Um, I don't know anyone who's going across there permanently. Mm. And so, and I've heard people say maybe when I've qualified as a GP after my training, I'll go across to Australia, but that's few and far between. Yeah, there's a sort of gap here they might do at best. And uh, yeah, 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 I can imagine because um, then obviously, uh, as someone you know twitter might think you're a sort of you know effing tory scab and you know i think one of the, i remember reading somewhere someone compared you sort of to some you know awful tumor or something in the bma it was some horrible rhetoric you've had but then with this in mind i imagine that it's interesting you say sort of jeremy hunt really sort of screwed up he has to go in a sense i mean do you feel that the tory government over the last six years then they've taken the nhs on the right direction over the last few years um or not i mean i have a few changes i'd make to the nhs yeah. I mean, if, if, we were to, if we were to start a health service from, from the 21st century, we wouldn't start where we are now. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's clear. Um, I, would, I would have a few, quite actually quite a list of changes that I would make. Um, I don't think, I, I think the 20, I think it was 2011 Health and Social Care Act was kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Hmm. Um, and I think Professor Samuel Gray talks of 22 changes to the um, NHS in his lifetime. Hmm. And he can't really think of any that has made a significant difference to the health service. Hmm. So we're basically still delivering care in the 21st century as we were delivering in 1948 when the NHS was founded. Hmm. So then when you're saying rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, um, if I can sort of pick you up on that, do, do you feel that this NHS system is you know, not fit for purpose, it's destined for a crash and it's... It's not sustainable. I don't think that at all. Hmm. Um, I think 
with the right reform, hmm. we can we can become a really good, really world class, really envied health system again, hmm. um, as we were when the NHS was founded. I mean, nobody has copied the exact structures of the NHS. Um, I mean, the internal market, for example, within the NHS just creates waste. Um, trusts competing against each other, shifting costs from one place to another. Hmm. Um, there's an interesting theory called value-based healthcare, hmm. um, which is all about trying to work out how much value, how much, how much productivity, basically, you're getting from every pound that you put into the health service. Hmm. Uh, and of course, with that, you need to measure outcomes, hmm. and we're not doing that. So, if you don't measure, so then, you can't as, as a doctor, it. do you feel that there's too many managers in the service, for example? No, I think our managing colleagues do a, a, a very good job. The majority of them. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I quite like the suggestion in UKIP's manifesto um, of a license to manage, so that, hmm. so that our managers do actually we get a license to practice when we're practicing medicine. Um, and the idea that we're professionalizing managers to such an extent where we're regulating them hmm. uh, will not only have the, have the effect of, of giving respect to those managers and, and, and professionalizing them in that way, hmm. it would also stop the scandals of managers moving from one trust, messing up one trust, and then moving to another. I can imagine. Although, um, if, it, if, it, if, if they can then lose their license. Hmm. I mean, it was it's interesting, um, may I say, that you're sort of picking up on the UKIP policy, um, Dr. Adam Dalby, because uh, if, obviously, given the sort of flack you've had for sort of going against the grain on the BMA strikes, I imagine, you know, UKIP is not a very good name to mention as a sort of doctor. They, you know, the, the, so, no, no, I mean, no. I mean, their, their position. Your community uh, is very much on the left in some ways. Find apparent. Yeah. Um, but they've come up with a good idea i mean i'm i'm not fussed about who comes up with a good idea exactly um in the same way that i don't think patients are fussed as to whether the private sector or the public sector or the third sector provide their health care so long as it's of a high enough quality um that they accept as as being high quality Mm. uh from their perspective and from the technical perspective Mm. so the perspective of doctors so in the meantime, if you were to say for a final question, which party are you most impressed by uh, it, well, on the NHS policy? Which one is the most promising policy in your mind? I think they're all much of a muchness. I quite like I quite like them all for different reasons, really. What about the Liberal Democrats? I'm going to be speaking to Norman Lamb next. So, uh, okay. What, what would you want to ask him? Um, I quite like. I quite like a lot of their, their parity of esteem, their mm. protection of whistleblowers. Um, I'd quite like to ask him how he how he would protect the whistleblowers, what exact mechanism he would put in place for protecting whistleblowers. Mm. Um, and I like the sound of their mental resilience campaign, similar to the Five a Day campaign. Cause mm. That's that's very good. Um, the problem I have with their manifesto, I've got a list of pros and cons uh, of each manifesto, and uh, and the, I think the Lib Dems are their main one. Mm is that they want to introduce uh, waiting standards in mental health. And they're not necessarily evidence-based, in the same way that the four-hour A&E target... Well, I'm um, sorry to cut you off short, Dr. Dalby, but uh, I'm going to have to sort of move to Norman, but I will definitely convey your concerns and feedback to him shortly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye now.
And so that was Dr. Adam Dalby, a junior doctor. And coming up next, we'll have Norman Lamb, Liberal Democrat health spokesman. But uh, first, just to get you in some context of um, what he thinks about things, he recently has been pushing a sort of idea of having a cross-party convention to find a long-term solution to the crisis in health and social care funding. And so here is a clip of him speaking in January about this. The Prime Minister, I'm sure, will understand, despite the reassurances, that, are, that there are genuine and really serious concerns amongst staff across the NHS and the care system and patients and their families about the pressures that they are under. Uh, and it's for that reason that MPs from her own party, from the Labour Party and from my own, have come together to call for the government to establish an NHS and care convention to engage with the public so that we can come up with a long-term settlement for the NHS and care. Would the Prime Minister be prepared to meet with us just to discuss it so that she can hear our case? Well, um, I recognise, obviously, the interest and and the attention that the Honourable Gentleman has given to these issues. And, of course, he is a former health minister himself. And I would be happy to meet uh, with him and others, as he suggests. And so that was Norman speaking in the Commons, and I have the pleasure to have him on the line. Norman, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, uh, you were there speaking to Theresa May, asking her to sit down for talks with you about social care. Have you had those talks yet? We did meet with her. Hmm. I should incidentally say that we were talking not only about social care, but about the future of the NHS as well. Hmm. My my argument... Were you impressed by what she said? Well, I, I was pleased that she was willing to meet with us, hmm. um, and uh, and when we did meet with her, she agreed to us meeting with her health advisor in number 10 to continue the discussion about the sort of cross-party approach that I want to uh, see take place. Hmm. My frustration is that since then, uh, we've had two meetings fixed up with her health advisor, both of which have been cancelled. Uh, the, the, the most recent was cancelled after the general election was called. Mm. Uh, and so I don't feel that the Conservatives have yet accepted the case for the need for the approach that I think uh, has to happen. And I, I suppose what I'd say is that, you know, over the last fortnight, we've had this debacle with the Tories coming out with, I think, very ill thought through plans for care for elderly people, which Mm. will end up with very high charges for a lot of people for care at home. It must have shocked you Uh, deeply, though, because you've worked with the Conservatives as a a care minister. You were in the last government, so you understand these people. It's it's deeply frustrating. Mm. Uh, On care for elderly people, I took the Care Act through Parliament with Conservative support. Uh, The Care Act included a cap on care costs of 72,000. It would have protected everyone against catastrophic loss. The Tories committed to implementing it in 2016, and then they abandoned it. Mm. And now... They've U-turned back into having a cap. Well, they've flip-flopped in both directions, but they now say there will be a cap, but they won't tell us what the cap is. So, Mm. extraordinarily, they're expecting people to vote for them without knowing what sort of protection will be available to them. I think that's extraordinary arrogance. Uh, I think people have a right to know before they vote uh, what the uh, level of protection will be. Mm. And then then certainly even many Tories were concerned about how absolutely bizarre this decision was and the resulting U-turn and all the rest of it. And then if I could just um, probe, given your experience of working with the Conservatives and government, as I'm saying, you you were a care minister, did you have to spend your years fending off more sort of absurd ideas like this? Well, uh, when you work with other people across political divides, you find that on some things you uh, can reach uh, agreement and Mm. other areas where there is, uh, 
you end up with frustration. Uh, the thing that I have felt uh, and continue to feel very passionately so about... So in some way you weren't surprised they'd try this then? Well, I, I mean, I, look, the, t- the Tories at the end of the coalition sort of spat us out uh, after they'd used us for five years. They sought to destroy us, hmm. uh, and it was pretty brutal. Uh, my passion, my particular passion, is improved access for mental health care. Hmm. Uh, people with mental ill health get treated appallingly by our NHS. They don't have the same right to get access to treatment on a timely basis. And the Tories, uh, what, I, what frustrates me with the Tories is they, uh, they, they pay lip service to it. They, they say they are committed to it, but they won't put the investment into making it happen. Mm, but then, obviously, one of your policies is, um, in, in the Yes Minister language, it's quite brave uh, to put a penny on <laughs> income tax in order to fund the NHS. Um, obviously, it's, not, it's going to hit working people if you do that shortly. You're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul if you're doing that shortly. Well, I- I, I think we all have a choice to make, uh, and you know this is in a way what elections are about. We all have to think very carefully. Hmm. Uh, do we want to ensure that our loved ones have access to care when they need it? Uh, I've had a couple where the husband has had uh, diagnosed with cancer. He was told that the time he would have to wait for his operation uh, was far too long uh, for them, and they were deeply anxious about the situation. So they ended up paying privately thousands and thousands of pounds. But most people can't afford that. Mm. And I don't want to live in a country where people who have money uh, cannot get access to treatment and people who don't have money are left waiting. So for me, uh, as a citizen of this country, I'm prepared to pay a little bit more in order to ensure that our loved ones get care when they need it. And the fascinating thing is on the doorstep, I'm getting people who say to me, look, I've voted Tory in the past, but I'm going to vote for you because I agree with the case for putting a penny on income tax. Hmm. Per person, it's not that much, but it brings in in total about £6 billion for the NHS and the care system, which could make a massive difference. Of course, and the Tories would probably say that they, they were trying to raise money a different way then by, when it, for social care by reshifting the costs so that people would still have to pay for it. Yeah, so the Tory approach is that you're just you just pay for it yourself. There's mm. no there's no what we call pooling of risk. The great value of taxation is that if we all pay a bit in, then we can protect ourselves. We can protect everyone from the risk of uh, very significant loss if we end up with dementia or some other condition. The Tory approach is well, if you get dementia, then you just pay for it all yourself. Mm. So the lottery of life. Uh, is really harsh under the Tory approach. My approach is let's pool risk, let's pay in a, a little bit each ourselves as a sort of insurance policy against the risk of getting dementia or some other awful condition. Mm. And I think that's a route to a much more civilised society. But, but then I'm, I'm intrigued by your um, sort of obviously quite sort of genuine anger about the Tories' policies and proposals on this, because of course people would say that you know you served in the last coalition, or sorry, you served with them in coalition, and uh, you know Andrew Lansley, of course, with the controversial Health and Social Care Act, um, you know that caused massive outrage. I mean, do, do you think that was a mistake, Lansley's health reforms? Well, I've never been a fan of those reforms, uh, and during their passage through Parliament, I spoke out against the uh, what. Uh, some of the implications were uh, of of the reforms taking place and we managed to get some changes Hmm. as a result but uh, I don't think that they made a lot of sense I I think the fragmentation of 
what we call commissioning, the, the organisations that hold the NHS money and uh, which we use to pay for treatment, hmm. uh, I think uh, hasn't made sense. And so uh, my argument is that we must uh, try to join up care, join up health and social care, trying trying to create what we call integrated care organizations so that you don't fall through the gaps between lots of different organizations mm. and that's uh, that approach to me makes a lot of sense it's got a lot of support within the nhs but at the moment uh, i see little hope of really achieving that change and primarily my concern with the tories uh, is about their failure to invest sufficiently in the nhs Hmm. Uh, and that's why i come back to the point we are prepared to make that difficult judgment call to say to the british people uh, there's a case of paying a bit more all of us paying a bit more in order to ensure that we get care when we need it of course although if i can sort of take you back to that sort of coalition then i mean your, your leader tim farron has said that uh, i mean you spoke out against the health reforms tim farron said actually you guys should have uh, you know voted against them and made this a real uh, line in the sand i mean do you think he's right to say that well, look, there's a, there's a case for... Uh, there's, there will always be an argument as to whether we should have completely blocked the, the reforms rather than seeking to change them. Hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm very open in accepting that during the coalition, uh, we made mistakes. Uh, I think it's, it's really important, uh, if you're in public life, to accept that if, if a mistake is made, to sort of be open and upfront about it. Hmm. But I also think that there were things we did in the coalition that were immensely valuable and I'm particularly proud of my work on mental health to give it the prominence uh, and priority that it deserves. I'm proud of the fact that we legislated to introduce a cap on care costs, albeit that I'm now totally frustrated that the Tories have abandoned that policy. Hmm. Uh, So there are lots of things that I feel very proud of but also I acknowledge that we made mistakes as well. Okay, because many of our listeners will be young voters who will remember the Liberal Democrats' time in coalition for uh, you know, their work with tuition fees, we say, the U-turn that had to happen. And so I imagine when they look... Well, Tim Farron, for example, during the leadership campaign, I recall he said he'd give his party a 2 out of 10 rating for its time in coalition. I mean, would you be similarly dour or would you be more optimistic, perhaps, given the tuition fees and what else you, you guys had to do? No, I, I think we... I think we performed an incredibly important role, uh, actually, in the interests of this country. Seven out of ten, uh, then. I th- yeah, I, I, I guess that's about right, actually, because I, I, I've already acknowledged that we made mistakes, hmm. uh, and too often politicians aren't willing to say that. But I think also, uh, in the period between 2010 and 2015, we provided stability. Uh, we got the public finances into a much better state. Mm. Uh, and, and on universities, uh, we made a dreadful mistake in uh, committing to uh, making the pledge about tuition fees. But what we ended up doing was to ensure that universities maintained their funding so that there weren't cuts to university uh, support, which means, uh, in, in a sense, that we've ensured that as many students are able to go to university, uh, as was the case before, hmm. uh, we, it ensures that universities in this country remain world-class. Uh, but it also, uh, we also made sure that the re- repayments you make as a, as a graduate are strictly based on your ability to pay. So if you become very wealthy after doing your degree, you perhaps become a banker or a lawyer or an accountant, yes, you will pay a lot back uh, in, in fees. But if you are on a low income 
following doing your degree, then you will actually play less back than you did before. So it is mm. a progressive system. And of course, at the end of your working life, if you haven't paid it off because you've been on a low income, then the rest the of the debt have borne this is out. written yeah. off. Yeah. yeah, the rest of the debt is written off. Oh, I can so, imagine. Yes, so yes, we made mistakes, but we did guarantee continued funding of universities. But then if I can ask about actually, the future... Like now, yes, um, with the yeah. general election, of course, you know, looking ahead to this, bearing the le- these lessons in mind, because obviously when you've been talking about social care, it sort of strikes me there's a tone when you're speaking about it as if you wish you could have been you know, in the room with the Tories, you know, speaking good liberal sense in their ear, uh, you know, putting them off these things. And now there's, I remember there's a recording of you, uh, maybe during the leadership election, in which you said, you know, that the party should always be aiming to, you know, put liberal values into government, you know, because if you can't do that, you know, there's no point. Yep. And obviously Tim yep. said it was going to be a cop out if you guys didn't, you know, at least be open to negotiations with other parties. So do you imagine, given the likelihood of a hung parliament, the polls indicate, that you would be open to talking with the Tories again or Labour about any sort of arrangement to support them? Uh, Well, your your question uh, makes the assumption that, uh, and you you use the word, the likelihood of a hung parliament. Implied by the polls. (laughs) No, well, implied by one... uh, based on a different way of calculating uh, likely right. outcomes. Let, let's leave, it, leave Most, out the polls, but you have said before that yeah. the party should be open to putting liberal values so, into government. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but my answer to you is that I think in this election, in this moment in time, hmm. uh, the Conservatives are very likely to re- be returned to power with probably a significant majority. And so I think in these circumstances... Uh, The important task is uh, effective opposition, holding them to account on the NHS, on funding for education, where we're seeing a proposal to cut real-term spending per pupil by 7% by Mm. 2022, which is crazy so far as I'm concerned. Uh, So it's about effective opposition. And my party party made a decision at the start of the election campaign, and we will stick with it. So you're sitting this one out, if there was a hung parliament. You'll not have any conversations. We, we, will, we will not enter a coalition. We will not enter any other deal. We will seek to use our influence in Parliament, mm. as I always try to do with regard to the NHS and care issues, uh, in order to achieve uh, better outcomes for the people of this country. But it's but interesting it is, then you're saying that, obviously, to be an effective opposition, because to be an effective opposition, you have to have MPs, naturally, and so you have to be really bouncing back. And obviously, the recent uh, electoral performance in the local elections, for example, would suggest that that's been quite hard for Liberal Democrats. I mean, do you think, um, you know, how, how optimistic are you as you look towards the next week? I know you're going to say we're fighting for every vote and all that, but <laughs> how, how do you feel, how credible do you think it is that you'll be bounced back into, I know, 12 MPs? What, what do you, how will you be satisfied with? I just think it's impossible for me at this particular point in the election process to make any rational judgment about how we're going to do uh, uh, to be blunt and honest with you i'm completely knackered <laughs> i've been working ludicrous hours every day as mm. i seek to uh, uh, win my north norfolk seat uh, i can't begin to make a judgment about the number of seats that we will win uh, post-election but i i just make this point that whether we are a small party or a larger force you can work with others uh, in terms of individual issues. That's why uh, I've led the case uh, in Parliament, working with both Tory MPs and Labour MPs, mm. uh, to get a cross-party consensus on the future of the NHS. Uh, that's the sort of approach that I try to take. I'm not a tribal politician. Mm. I will always work with other MPs from across the party spectrum 
in order to achieve results for people. Now, Norman, I remember and you are quite rightly respected for that. But then if I might, fi- as, a, as a final question on, on the general election campaign so far, um, obviously, it's been a fascinating conversation with you on the NHS, I must say. But, but it saddens me in some ways, because in the general perception of things, people would think in a national conversation, the Liberal Democrats, all they stand for is being anti-Brexit, and that's it. I mean, do you feel there's been too much emphasis on opposing Brexit in your campaign? Uh, well, look, I, I've been very clear that I'm a Democrat and hmm. that I, I accept the outcome of the referendum. And I think it's actually quite important um, to state that. Uh, I, I broke the party. But do you think you've been stating on, it too much, sort of talking uh, about Brexit? Well, I, look, for, for me, the issues, when I go around talking to people on the doorstep, the issues that most people are concerned about are the NHS, uh, if, if, you're, if it's a young family with children, uh, it's obviously about uh, the future of schools and education, uh, care for older people, uh, and indeed other issues, the police force and so on. It's the normal uh, stuff of politics that uh, most people are concerned about. There is a subset of people who are very, very passionate about Brexit, mm. on, indeed on both sides of the argument. But for me, the task now is to negotiate a deal uh, that is in the best interests of this country. And that means maintaining close trading links with the EU, maintaining academic links, cultural links, and so forth. Of course, but then... Recogni- but then but everyone, no, one, no one would sort of... People would just think, you know, they always call you Bramonas. They don't think about your... You know, Jeremy Corbyn has monopolised the whole idea of being opposed to NHS cuts and how to sort of save it, how to oppose the dementia tax. You guys sat now have been relegated to a sideshow because they just think you're a Brexit one-man band. I mean, this is the risk, surely. Well, look, uh, I'm not running the national campaign. The, uh, the if only you were, debate. some people might think. If only you were. <laughs> now, uh, I, I, I couldn't was, possibly come in. Oh, right. Well, I was maybe leave that. Although, if I can squeeze one last question in, yeah, um, because on, obviously we've right. got a, a sort of friend, a friend of the show, you might say. Um, you might recognise this man's voice if I play it now. Scan on what is me, Tinchy Strider, Cloud Nine. So Tinchy Strider there, if you may yeah. have heard that. Um, Absolutely, you, I recognise him immediately. You're good friends with him. Uh, now, like, do you know, have you spoken with him during a campaign? Is he uh, supporting you all the way? Is he a Liberal no, Democrat? Uh, uh, well, it was, it, our son um, yes. uh, had previously been his manager, not, not any longer. Hmm. Uh, we, but we actually remortgaged our house to help fund his first album. Um, so, uh, which is perhaps slightly unusual for a politician to support a grime artist uh, in uh, launching his career. Very brave decision. Uh, but, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, he ended up with two number one hits in 2009 mm. and a number three. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, but we try to support both our sons in what they're doing. And, uh, and I'm very proud of both, of both of them. So, you know, that's, that's the judgment call the parents have to make. I take it Tinchy is, he's not a Liberal Democrat then? Or is he, have you spoken to him about I politics? Couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly speak about Tinchy, although yesterday I had Frank Bruno up supporting me in North Norfolk. Uh, he, he's a brilliant advocate for people with mental ill health. Mm. And he wanted to come up on a personal basis uh, to support me in my campaign for re-election. Well, I think that just shows the uh, sort of cross-party appeal you definitely have. Well, Absolutely. thank you very much for your time, Norman, and have a good afternoon. Thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Bye now.
And so that was Norman Lamb, the Liberal Democrat health spokesman, you know, shadow health secretary, you might say, and also former coalition uh, sort of care minister. Coming up next is our studio debate on the NHS. It's going to be rambunctious and feisty stuff, rest assured. We'll be welcoming Dr. Youssef el and Kate Andrews into the studio, and also uh, Charlie Smith on the phone to answer the question, what needs to be done to improve the future of the NHS? But first, here are some more examples of how Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn are planning for the future of the NHS. There is absolutely no suggestion of the privatisation of the health service. We believe in a national health service that continues to be free at the point of use. Uh, What is uh, crucial is you, in terms of funding for the NHS, we're actually putting record levels of funding into the NHS. So by 2020, the figure that came from the 2015 election was by 2020 an extra 10 billion. We said that by the end of this coming parliament, there'll be an extra 8 billion. So that uh, represents... Uh, real terms increases each year for the funding for the National Health Service. We need to make sure that money is being spent effectively in the NHS. Over, over these five years, we're spending half a trillion pounds on the National Health Service. Um, and uh, we need to make sure that that money is being spent effectively. So we're doing some other things. For example, in the budget, we're putting some more money into accident and emergency uh, so that hospitals can, some hospitals need to adapt their accident and emergency to make sure they're giving patients the best possible treatment. Not everybody who turns up at A&E needs to go into the hospital. It's making sure the patient gets the best possible treatment. It will be records amounts of funding going into the NHS in the future under a Conservative government. Our health service is actually being dismantled by stealth. Over the past seven years, our National Health Service has been driven into crisis after crisis. The privatisation has gone on a huge scale. £13 billion of taxpayers' money handed over the last year to private companies to profit from our NHS services. I believe that the NHS has to be always free at the point of use, and I believe that nurses have to be properly treated, and that's why I've outlined our proposal bringing back the nurse bursary, but also bringing back the um, ability of all unions in the NHS to negotiate their paying conditions by lifting the public sector pay cap. We will ensure that there is a legally enforceable staffing level in hospitals. Uh, All our proposals are fully costed and fully funded. They all rely on either moving existing budgets or changing taxation levels of for corporates and the very top end of our society. So that's what the uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May would have to say about the NHS. And now I have pleasure to discuss these issues with a variety of experts in the studio. First off, I'd like to welcome Charlie Smith, the mental health campaigner. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. And also I'd like to welcome Kate Andrews, the news editor of the Institute of Economic Affairs, a free market think tank. Hello. And finally, but certainly not last or even least, Dr. Yusuf el who is a GP and author of How to Dismantle the NHS in 10 Easy Steps. Hello. Now, first off, uh, Dr. Youssef, um, that's a very stark book title, I must say. Sort of, are you feeling that the NHS is being dismantled right now as we speak, sort of thing? What, what step are we on? I would say we're sadly on the penultimate step of about, of about nine, which is um, what we've seen over the, the last few years, an acceleration, a consolidation of privatisation, contrary to the kind of denials we've heard from Theresa May. And I think step 10, which is... Which is uh, creating a two-tier system, expanding private health insurance is, is kind of actually happening right now. We've got a two-tier system on the ground in NHS hospitals, um, and we're seeing personal health budgets being rolled out for patients, which will enable top-up co-payments. Hmm. And so, Charlie, do you agree with this analysis? Yeah, to be fair, I probably would. We are getting to a pretty, pretty bad stage. Hmm. 
I can imagine. I mean, I imagine the phone line feels uh, like it might have gone. So, in the meantime, while we try and get her back, um, Kate, how are you feeling when you listen to Yusuf speaking about this? Do you feel it's being ripped apart and you, that's good, bad? How's it going? Uh, that's not the assessment I would give it. The King's Fund, which is um, a very prominent, very good healthcare think tank, although it's very open about the fact that it supports a single-payer system in an NHS style, has even come out and said that the NHS is not being privatized, certainly not in the traditional sense. Uh, they estimate that roughly 10% of healthcare spending, just under, uh, goes on uh, some kind of, of, of private outlet when it comes to NHS funding. But the majority of that's chalked up to hospital beds, furniture, cleaners, things like that. Um, actually, a very small proportion of care is being privatized. I do agree, however, that there is a growing two-tier system here in the UK, which I'm deeply worried about. If you are very, very wealthy and you have the money to go just off Oxford Street or to one of these beautiful places in Mayfair and pay £300 to see a GP, you can have on-demand healthcare service, and it's very good and it's very quick. Uh, this should not be the case. You should not have to be wealthy to access excellent healthcare. Mm. I think, unfortunately, the system of the NHS is just buckling, not necessarily because it's underfunded and not because it's being privatized, but because this system system was not built for 2017. Um, the, nowhere outside of the shores of the UK has adopted the NHS-style service. So what sort of systems should we have? Well, I'm personally a huge fan of the social health insurance systems throughout Europe. So often when we're talking about the NHS, people say, well, what about America? As if the only two systems are the National Health Care Service and the American system. Um, both are deeply flawed in their own ways. Uh, the majority of the developed world, almost every country apart from the US, has universal access to health care, 100 percent um, coverage for everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. But most of these systems um, are publicly funded. Government funds everybody, but privately run and use health insurance systems. And the wait times are, are lower. People are getting access to treatment faster, and they're saving more lives. It, in my opinion, the evidence is really in favor of places like Germany and Switzerland, not the UK. Okay. So, uh, Charlie, I think we have you back. You do indeed. Well, Hello. welcome. Uh, you know, now, so second time lucky. Uh, how about, have you been hearing Kate speaking about the social uh, health insurance system? I mean, how, what's, your how you've, what's your take on the future of the NHS? I mean, because the line was a bit crackly, I've sort of heard it a bit on and off. Um, hmm. But in terms of, yeah, the future of the NHS, um, sort of looking at it from more of a mental health perspective, hmm. I think when it comes to that sort of side, it, at the moment, the future isn't looking too good. There seems to be cut after cut after cut. And even when more and more money is being invested, um, or supposedly being invested, still not a lot of that is going towards mental health services. So I think it's getting to a stage now where if you can't really afford to go private, and quite honestly, like, you're going to have an incredibly long wait. And as a result, your mental health may just deteriorate in the process. Hmm. And then, uh, Dr. Youssef, do you think this is a, is a deliberate machination from the Tory government? They, they want this to happen. They're driving it into the... Into the you know, into the floor, basically. Yeah, absolutely, this is this is deliberate. This has been a very long journey. It started Why? in the started in the eighties, and I think Kate uh, here and the IEA. Um, uh, what, 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 we, right, right, why is that deliberate, though? It's deliberate because the blueprints were drawn up in the nineteen eighties. So we, we saw a paper from the Centre for Policy Studies back then, written by Oliver Letwin and John Redwood. We also saw a paper from the Adam Smith Institute. But what do they the have 80s. to gain from doing this? You know, you, this is, you, implying they're evil. They want to sort no, of you know. This is, so this is openly discussed in the health trades press. So right. If if, if you, uh, any of us read the Health Service Journal, other health trade journals, even the Financial Times, this is openly discussed. The reason this is happening is that the U.S. healthcare market is saturated, and U.S. Uh, healthcare and insurance corporations are moving out uh, into the UK, into Europe, into Asia. They've, that's their, that's the openly discussed. That's not, there's nothing concealed or conspiratorial about this. That mm. is the clear stated policy of 
huge corporations like United Health. Unfortunately, the treatment of this in the mainstream media and the corporate media is complete obfuscation, confusion. A lot of people don't really understand what's going on. And unfortunately, when Kate talks about the NHS as being a failed uh, model, that's actually, um, unfortunately, her, her kind of shooting herself in the foot because the failures of the NHS um, are that, it is a, that it's become a market system. It is no longer the publicly provided, publicly owned um, and to some extent, publicly financed, although it remains fin- financed by tax, but there's increasing private financing. Mm. It is no longer that. And a lot of the failures have been three decades of converting it into a market. And we know from all the evidence, market forces simply and privatization. I'm going to have to let have Kate come yeah, in here. Yeah. So um, the OECD doesn't take its it doesn't pick its favorite healthcare system like a lot of these rankings do. It just looks at them and it tries to sum up what they're doing. And they compare healthcare systems like for like. So they'll compare the NHS to other similar systems throughout the world. Um, as I said, nobody has adopted the NHS. I think that's very telling. But similar systems that are publicly funded and have more public provisions providing the healthcare as well. And their most recent analysis still says that the NHS is one of the least competitive, least market driven forces in the world when it comes to healthcare. It is not the case that marketization of the NHS is what is failing it. The reasons that you have papers from across the board, starting from the 80s, I think, frankly, even before, um, and in an attempt to reform the NHS is because it has been buckling for a very long time. And this attempt to, again, say America, say U.S., use this fear-mongering, completely ignores that throughout the developed world, let's name a few, France, Germany, Switzerland, Australia, New Zealand, Italy, Singapore, Korea, across the world, you have developed healthcare systems that are using private market forces, but publicly making sure that everybody has access to that good health insurance. And they are succeeding wildly. They are saving thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives more a year when it comes to the really serious stuff like cancers and stroke and heart attacks. Hmm. And, you know, I'm Frankly, I actually, I really don't care about the ideology on one side or another. I just like to look at the evidence and see what works, which is why I'm not actually advocating a free market system. Gosh, having an entire system publicly funded with handouts to people so they can access health insurance. It's not what any of us would think of as a private system. But I've recognized that in countries like, countries like Switzerland and Germany, it's working really, really well. And you have that okay. level of redistribution and the private market making things more competitive. So if I can focus and it works on well. what works. Um, so Charlie, listening to, to that, um, obviously, we see that sort of Britain, the, the NHS here, is having problems providing a sort of high quality mental health care. I mean, is there any sort of international example you think we should be really following and taking uh, lessons from? To be honest, I think that mental health care is something which isn't particularly brilliant worldwide. I, I honestly can't think of a single country where I like look at them and I'm like, actually, you've got this spot on here. Because I think it's still an area that is really, you know, not talked about enough. And Some new territory, yes. Um, and, you know, when it actually comes to stigma and stuff, the UK tends to be quite good when it comes to being more open about it. But other countries and stuff, um, you know, there isn't that same level of openness. It's not being discussed in the media. So when it comes to sort of healthcare, I'd say actually when it comes to sort of mental health care in particular, there isn't really a singular system that sort of nailed it, like got it on the head at the moment. It just seems something that needs to be improved everywhere. And maybe, you know, it's not working within the NHS, but it doesn't really seem to be working within any other systems either. Hmm. And then so, uh, Dr. Yusuf, what do you think when you're listening to that? Sort of, there needs to be, what's the solution? Is it just more money and there we go? Or uh, no. bigger thinking than that, surely, is needed? No, absolutely. Um, the, the, the debate we've heard, particularly from, from the Lib Dems, is around underfunding, underinvestment, which is fine, but that is actually um, only half the story. Yes, we've seen £40 billion 
of well we will have seen 40 billion pounds in cuts by the end of the decade and that's that's catastrophic but privatization is really the main issue that we need to be discussing tens of billions of pounds out of the annual nhs budget are going to corporations and financial institutions that needs to be tackled because we know because that's ideological and hmm. um, we know that the evidence is that public universal health care is more efficient. Kate's talking about competition. Um, I mean, again, going back to that competition, I'm afraid, doesn't work very well in healthcare. Hmm. Um, we, we've known that for decades. That's the evidence. If you speak to health economists, public health academics, when Kate talks about Europe, all very interesting. Unfortunately, that's not what the Conservatives are planning. They very well, clearly laid out. I see the clock is ticking on, I'm afraid, so I'm going to have to awkwardly sort of try and bring this nearer to an end. But then if I could say for a final question, just going around uh, to my esteemed panel, um, I'd, I'd like to sort of ask you all each for one sort of short sentence on like uh, one little you know solid step one solid move that could be done to improve the future of the nhs and help it get onto a more stable footing uh so charlie you first what do you think i think first of all yeah obviously there's a funding side but i think with the nhs when it comes to mental health care also that educational side and ensuring that everyone who works for the nhs or may work for the nhs sort of has more of an understanding of mental health so Mm. if people are affected by cuts then you know, at least they've got someone who's understanding, speaking to them, and who sort of understands uh, what, what mental health is all about, really. All right. And then, Kate, what would you say? I would say we need to stop treating the NHS like it's the nation's adopted puppy. It's a healthcare system. And when we look at it from a rational and evidence-based perspective, rather than an emotional one, we might be able to get real reform and save more people's lives. And finally, Yusuf? Um, well, yeah, if we look at it from an evidence-based point of view, we need to, to reinstate, restore the NHS as publicly provided, owned and funded, um, which is which is currently what... Corbyn's leadership is proposing. All right. Well, in that case, thank you very much for your time and have a good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Fubar Radio presents. Joey Page. Time to welcome Kate Nash into the studio. Being in LA, how has that impacted the way that you write your music? I hated it for the longest time because I hate Hollywood because I could totally see how people get affected. For me, coming home to London immediately resets me. The diversity in London is something that you just can't find many places. The differences are so huge and I appreciate that I got to grow up in this city that was challenging and political but like about blending and mixing mm-hmm. and sharing and like that's totally what my youth was. Every Wednesday Joey Page from 2pm FUBAR Radio. FUBAR Radio presents Politics on FUBAR Hello and welcome back. I'm Asa Bennett and I hope you've been enjoying the show We're talking about the NHS uh, with a variety of experts and don't worry we have one more for you left. Mark Diana, Policy and Public Affairs Analyst from the Nuffield Trust uh, joins me now. Sort of now. Hello. Hello. Um, now Nuffield Trust, am I right in thinking it's a sort of charitable uh, sort of, well, I would say organisation think tank as it were focused on health isn't it pretty much yeah yes. focused on the nhs and social care now were you listening to the, sort of the tail end of the debate we were just having earlier i'm afraid it wasn't no no it's fine well in that case i can just summarize it for you it basically all sorts of views coming through about the future of the health service mm. you wouldn't believe it people were sort of uh, you know we had uh, gps coming in saying that you know we need to have more spending and obviously experts from the iea coming in saying uh, that actually you know social health insurance might be the better policy yes. i mean how how yeah, if we say the NHS is up a creek without a paddle, how big yeah. is this creek, and what, where's the paddle that it can be, it can get to sort of get itself out of this mess? Well, I think it's important not to get you know too panicky about it. Um, the Sorry NHS about that. Is certainly <laughs> having a bit of a worry on waiting times. The mm. staffing situation is pretty bad. There's big shortages of nurses and GPs, um, and there are some signs that on some things we don't perform as well as our sort of international counterparts. Now, sort of behind that is probably the fact that the NHS has been on a major funding squeeze throughout the last seven years. Uh, it's only been getting funding increases about 1% a year, hmm. which might sound fairly generous given a lot of other government departments have had cuts. But 
uh, health services usually require more than that because the population is continuously aging hmm. and people want to spend more on health care as it learns to do I mean, many, many young design. voters listening will be worried about the health service, given that obviously they've grown up with it all their lives. And, you know, I think it's, it's, we've celebrated its sort of 60th uh, you know, birthday recently. I mean, do you think it will still be around in the decades to come? I think it probably will. Yes. Um, so, I mean, obviously there are solutions out there from, from people like the IEA, which involve the NHS moving to some sort of model where it's funded differently. Hmm. Um, I think it's slightly missing the point to think that, that really solves the problem. The NHS probably needs more money. Mm. Whether you badge the way that that money comes out of your paycheck as social insurance or taxes is is kind of a second-order thing. Mm. Um, and we've seen that this election, you know, all the parties really across the spectrum pretty much committed to the principles of the NHS. They remain extremely popular. Um, they're all promising to put more money in, although, if we're brutally honest, our calculations would suggest probably not enough. Mm. I mean, how much um, so, do you yes, think is needed? Here in decade. Um, well, you can get lots of different measures of what the NHS needs, but I think one that's a fairly uh, going to be something like a minimum is that it would be good to see the NHS uh, spending on the NHS keeping up with the growth in the wider economy, so mm. at least that the rate, the amount we spend on healthcare is going up as quickly as the amount we spend on, you know, cars, entertainment, everything else. Okay. Uh, and at the moment that isn't the case, and actually perhaps surprisingly for some people, even under Labour's plans, which are slightly more generous than the Tories mm. in their manifestos, that still wouldn't be the case the total amount of the national pie, if you like, that goes on health would still be shrinking. Mm, because then there's an interesting debate where it, as soon as some people say, it's, and many young people listening will be thinking, just spend more money, Tories stop being so brutish and keeping the sort of budget squeezed like this. But then it, people then say, if you do that, then you're going to enc- encourage a horrendous bureaucracy that's going to smother the NHS and make sure it's not very effective at all. I mean, what's the midpoint? What's the, as well for the final idea of the takeaway for our audience, um, how, what's the compromise that's acceptable? Well, I think probably quite a quite a positive thing would be if the NHS was to get more money in quite a steady way. Mm. What it's tended to have um, ever since its inception really is it gets lots and lots of money and then very little money and that sort of means that it has sometimes struggled to use the money in the most productive way when it's getting lots and lots and lots uh, and then things really start to go south when it's getting very little Mm. and I think a nice steady measured increase in funding would probably help the NHS to address some of its underlying problems um, of of which there are you know several um, I think people are pretty much agreed that there's too much reliance on hospitals and not enough on care in the community. Um, there certainly are inefficiencies in things like procurement and use of land. Mm. Um, so I think a nice, a long-term settlement that moves funding up at a nice steady pace would probably create the best sort of setting for some of those deeper problems to be addressed. Yes, and obviously the, the budget so far has been uh, in, increased in, I think, real terms, though, despite not having lots more money showered on it, in a sense. So, I mean, if it may ask for one, like, final note of optimism, in a way, uh, you know, because many young voters listening, you know, they may have gone out to, to join the junior doctors, they may be worrying about the future of the health service, you know, it's all going to be all right, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I think for the next five years, under any of the party spending plans we've seen, it's still going to be quite difficult. So... I think uh, a lot of the NHS workforce will continue to feel that workload is growing faster and that there are some shortages and people they need to be working with. Hmm. I think patients, unfortunately, will probably continue to see waiting times get longer. But at the same time, you know, this is still a developed country health system providing hmm. a perfectly good service to most people who need it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for the very, uh, very nice balanced picture to close the show. No problem. Bye now.
And so that was Mark Diane uh, from the Nuffield Trust. I hope you've enjoyed this show. And obviously, if you want to get in touch, please do. Our Twitter is at FUBAR Radio. And you can email at politics at FUBARradio.com. And well, certainly as an extra treat, given our interview earlier in the show with Norman Lamb, I thought it'd be appropriate to uh, play us out with some Tinchy Strider. But not just any piece. Well, the little ditty he did with the Chuckle Brothers, of course. This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. Go to foobarradio.com for more details. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes.